So this summer we're in a series, um, it's a series, it's kind of a two-part series in, um, in the Minor Prophets. Uh, we're in four weeks now in, uh, in the book of Habakkuk, uh, and then we'll be turning to the book of Amos, and they are, uh, and, I, and I kind of, I don't know, affectionately, uh, ironically, I, I refer to these as, as the dissonant gospel as it's presented to us through scripture. We see uh, uh, the cross highlighted a lot through the uh, Minor Prophets. Um, and, uh, and, and Habakkuk is no different. Uh, I, I really feel as though uh, when we read the book of Habakkuk, uh, there's, there are three chapters, and, and, and more or less, they, they, they kind of very much slow us down through the, 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 all the events that are around Good Friday, uh, I don't know, maybe we'll call it Silent Saturday, and then, and then, and then Easter Sunday. Um, we're really, uh, in this part right now, is, is kind of locating ourselves somewhere along the lines of Saturday. What we, we looked at the cross and say, why is this wickedness on Christ? And now we're going to hear, uh, or we're going to hear God speak to us in the midst of wondering, when is this all going to play out? And I love that Habakkuk gives us the words and the emotions when our life seems a lot like that, that weekend that we celebrate so much where we just wonder what's happening here. We know that your plan is, is, is good and will, and will take place, but it doesn't seem like it's happening right now. And so we can rightly, through the way of Habakkuk, present our, uh, our complaints, our laments, our requests to God. So as we do, um, if you are physically able, out of reverence for God's word, I'd ask that you stand uh, as we read our text today. This is Habakkuk 1, verses 12 through uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord? My God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them up. Uh, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, and death, uh, and like death, he, has, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects his own all peoples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So these are strange words. Uh, there's a poetry here. There's a prophetic poetry here. It invites us into considering what's happening 
within this vision, within this uh, foresight of what's going on. Uh, there's a, a prolific Christian author, uh, Max Lucado. He speaks of uh, kind of the sentiment that Habakkuk is in right now and maybe we've found ourselves in as well. I'll just read uh, something he writes uh, in, a, in, a, in a post that he's, he's titled, Silent Saturdays. It says, Silent Saturdays, the day between the struggle and the solution, the question and the answer, the offered prayer and the answer thereof. Sa- uh, Saturday's silence torments us. Is God angry? Did God disappoint him? God knows Jesus is in the tomb, but why doesn't he do something? Or maybe in your case, God knows your career is in the tank. Your finances are in the pit. Your marriage is a mess. You've seen or are now seeing your child grow up and make terrible choices. And all the while, your unbelieving neighbor seems to be doing just fine. Thank you. Why doesn't God act? What are you supposed to do until he does? You do what Jesus did that Saturday. You lie still. You stay silent and you trust God, end quote. There's this dissonant place that we need to be rightly as Christians. Uh, We need to not sweep it under the rug. Last week, we focused on this place of doubt in our lives, that Christians need to have good, well-placed, well-founded doubt. Not doubting who God is or that he exists, but relying on those and coming to him with questions about his plan and his timing and his approach. And now here, even his use of wicked people. Now, I, I, I personally, as I read this, this, uh, this phrase, I, I, the big one here, the righteous shall live by his faith. This is quoted uh, three times in the New Testament. It helps, to, helps us to understand what Habakkuk's meaning here. This is the first time it shows up in Scripture. And I think sometimes, you know, in Christian subculture, we rip, uh, you know, verses out of context. And, 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 and I am uh, and I'm just as frustrated with, uh, with that uh, approach to reading the Bible or just writing down a verse of the Bible as the next angsty Christian is. And I, I'll admit, in times where I felt like I'm in the pit or I'm in the mess or I'm, I'm suffering, the last thing that I've wanted is, is, is hope or seeming hope when someone says something or hands me some kind of Christian kitsch with on it says, the righteous shall live by faith. I say, anyway, thank you for this. This is, this is a great guilt trip gift. Thank you. Uh, uh, because this, my faith is why I'm here because if I didn't have faith, I could just deal with this in the most vicious way possible and get it over with. But my faith calls me to be patient. My faith calls me to do this rightly. And it says that if I act out of anger, which I'm very angry in this situation, that that then is sin. And so if I didn't have faith, it seems like this would just be easier. The problem is not my faith. The problem is the lack of answers within it. And so it is a good thing to tell someone the righteous live by faith. It is good that God gives Habakkuk, who is clearly frustrated here, this nice phraseology. And so if you're like me and you roll your eyes sometimes, I just invite you to slow it down. Let's listen in context to what the Lord is saying. Because when he delivers, the righteous shall live by his faith. In this context, it is so powerful. It is so intense. And I hope that it is an encouragement for us today. If we do well to rightly and robustly explore our doubt as Christians, just as Habakkuk does, we also do well to rightly and robustly explore our faith and not just say, I believe in Jesus, and then move on. Faith here 
is very robust. And so I want to look at what this means, especially in the context of a season of the pit, of the mess, of suffering. So uh, the urge today, urgently wait for Jesus Christ with expectation. Urgently wait for Jesus Christ with expectation. Now I know that that is a principle that applies to many texts in the Bible, but it is a good one. We'll give it teeth here in a moment. But let's go into this. We're going to look at two different sides of this. We're going to look at, at, at Habakkuk's complaint. That's verses uh, 12 through, um, what is it, chapter 2, verse 1. So then there's a pause. That's Habakkuk saying his response to what Jesus is ju- or what, what uh, the Lord has just said. And then we're going to hear in verses uh, tw- uh, 2 uh, through whatever, through 5, what the Lord's response is. And, and it moves us very quickly to urgently waiting for Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to give a survey because the wording is, I'll just be honest, the wording is, strange. It's, it's odd. Um, I just want to give an overview of kind of what's being said here. Uh, last week, I mistakenly said that there are five questions that Habakkuk uh, presents to the Lord. There are seven. I counted the question marks. That was an easier way to do it. There are seven. Three of them come up here in our text um, today. So there are three questions. This first one is in, in verse 12, uh, where he says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Uh, what a weird question. So there's something that's striking that happens. Um, in, 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 this, uh, in this question. To recap, what we've just read uh, is that uh, Habakkuk comes out of the gate saying, how long are you going to do this? How long must we look at wickedness? And, uh, and, then, and then he goes on to ask this other question or this other pairing of question. Do you see this? Why aren't you doing anything? Why are you idle when you see wickedness like this? And so he says, how long are we doing this and why aren't you doing anything about it? And the Lord answers, yeah, the Babylonians, they're super wicked. They're really bad, and I am using them. So then this question here, if Josh asked this question, verse 12 would read, and then Josh said, what? <laughs> but it doesn't say that. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? I think that sense is there, but this is kind of a Bible reading skill. Uh, there are times where the Bible uh, asks or says things that are very striking. They're very odd. We don't expect them. Those are little flags that should cause us to pause and say, what's going on here? Why would you answer this? Because Habakkuk isn't an idiot. He's not just saying random questions. He actually is answering something that's for us. He leads off here, or he responds here by challenging God. He says, aren't you from everlasting? My holy one. Later on, he'll say, O rock, He's using language. He's, he's appealing to God's, uh, God's character of who, what we know of him. You're going to do that? Wait, wait, wait. Aren't you this guy? So I want to look at this one everlasting. The word here for everlasting, it kind of has this, this double meaning. So uh, in, 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 in uh, the Hebrew context, in, in Habakkuk's worldview, in his, in his framework, how he's thinking is different than ours. The way they think is even different than the way we think. So one of the things that everlasting means here is obviously uh, everlasting before. It's prehistoric. It's, it's the thing that happened earliest, the, the, the former thing, the ancient thing, the most ancient thing. Um, and so it goes back in history, the everlasting. So the way that they, they work, their, their ideas, their words, their, uh, their, their thoughts all kind of mash together in this language. This also means something like mourning, uh, like morning, like the morning, the dawn. Because if we think about this, just as time happens, when does the day start? 
we go back to the start, we go back to morning. Where is the morning? The dawn, the sun comes up in the east. So this word that's here for everlasting, it's kind of this like mashing together of everlasting. You are the former before all things, but it's also you are the earliest like the dawn, but then it's also you are the east. We chase this word down. We chase this idea of everlasting. You could do it. It doesn't have to be in Hebrew. You can write everlasting and, and, and go see how God is talked about in your Bible when, when, it, when he speak, was spoken of as the everlasting. There's this idea that the most powerful is the most preeminent. The most powerful is the most prehistoric. The one who comes from the first is the sovereign one. And from the sovereign one comes all things that are not as powerful as he. Also, the one who comes from, this is crazy, the one who comes from the east is also the most powerful. And then the glory of the Lord rested on the mountain to the east. We read this in the Old Testament. And then we read elsewhere in Scripture, this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of the Babylonians. He is spoken of as coming from the east. I mean, geographically, he's there, but there's also a sense that this power is coming. Jesus, when he rests, he goes to the mount, and it specifically says in the New Testament, that was to the east of Jerusalem. There's something about this guy, this God, who is before all things, who is most powerful, and who will ultimately conquer. So you're going to use the Babylonians, this wicked nation, God, and I don't know how. It's beyond me. You've said it's beyond me. But aren't you the one that's most powerful? And that makes sense. Then he says, we shall not die. I can, I can, I can wrestle with the fact that, that you're working this out in a way that I don't understand, but I still have confidence that you're going to win. You see how he wrestles with his doubt and his faith together? Verse 12, are you not from everlasting? Are you not holy? We shall not die. You will come. There's something here. And I'm going to go in deeper then. And so that's something maybe exemplary for us. Though Habakkuk is not a one-to-one -one example for us, the words that he presents to God come out of this huge balance of doubt and faith. I trust that you, will, that you are powerful. I trust that you will conquer ultimately. I trust that we will not die. He's going to come back and wrestle with this idea of death and life. And so I got a question. Why aren't you doing that now? Verse, verse uh, what is it? Verse 13. It's the, the, the sixth question or the second one for today. Why do you idly look at traitors as the wicked swallows up the righteous? This is very similar kind of approach, very similar language, very similar grappling that another prophet, a contemporary of Habakkuk says. In Jeremiah 12, 1, uh, we can read this on the screen. Jeremiah brings this same kind of idea together. Righteous you are, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? A similar thing but it kind of moves us to this focus on why use the wicked? Why, maybe not even use the wicked, but why do the wicked prosper? Jeremiah is speaking of the same people that Habakkuk is speaking of at the same time that Habakkuk is speaking of them. We've got a problem with the Babylonians. Uh, interestingly enough, they, we'll get into the Babylonians and what they're doing. Verse 14 poses, I think, the big question for us. 
Habakkuk concludes, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He concludes, if you're not going to do anything, God, if your law is going to be paralyzed or perverted, he's already said that, if, you are, if the wicked are going to prosper, if you're going to leave us, leave us out here to die, if the wicked will swallow us up, then it seems like we don't have a ruler. Why do we call you our ruler if you're not going to do that? So there's his, there's his implicit question. Why follow you if you're not going to do anything? It's a similar question to what he's asked, you know, last week or previously. But what are these Babylonians doing? Now, you can read a lot about the Babylonians. Uh, they're very arrogant people. They're very prideful people. Uh, maybe just going back to uh, the re- previously in chapter 1, um, God says, for behold, I am, uh, this is verse 6, God says, uh, for behold, I am raising up the, the, the Chaldeans, the, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and their dignity go forth from themselves. They define justice not on my law, but of themselves. Uh, verse 10, the, at kings, they scoff at rulers. They laugh, they laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. They're guilty men whose own might is their God. They really like themselves, and they're very successful at what they do. We're going to see that they gather. They're insatiable. They are hungry for something. They're hungry for power, and they just continue to gather up people like fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no rulers. And verse 15 through 17, let's read through this. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Habakkuk says, he gathers us up. He's killing us out here because we have no ruler. And then verse, verse 16, he says, therefore he sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet. He says he's worshiping his tools of his trade. And he does a very good job of what he's doing. And why wouldn't he? Because of the end of verse 16. For by them he lives in luxury. His food uh, his food is rich. I wonder, as, as I've been reading this, I've been struck with this, with this wording. Yeah, um, it seems as though the Babylonians are a people who, who have great success from themselves and in their tools. And, and I just, I'm just struck by this. And maybe, I'm, maybe I'm going too quickly and too, too, too harshly and too... Um, too pointedly uh, with this, but it seems like in the course of history, America, especially in suburbia, is somewhat of the epitome of people who pride themselves in their own ways, using their own tools, using their own, uh, what is it, their own education, their own network, their own personality, their own salary package, their investments. I, I feel like sometimes I just love reading the Bible and saying the wicked are terrible and they're dumb and obviously they're going to get there. But I wonder if we are invited here to pause for a moment and say, who are we here? I don't know. Which one are we supposed to be, the righteous or the wicked? Because when I look around at North Liberty, I see things that are similar to this. I see trailer parks and I see big houses, lots of polished cars, and I see a disparity. And I'm not saying that there's an evil in in whether you're in one or the other, but I wonder, 
what does Babylon look like now? Who are the Babylonians now? And it's not my job to say, you, 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 but I, want, I feel like it just gives us pause because it's given me pause and I don't know what to do with it. I don't like it because I have a feeling that I'm going to land on the wicked side. But in Habakkuk's case, he says, what are you doing? You promised that you would be with your people. And the evil one is using evil ways to get us down. So do something. So where is he headed? I love this. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, so I'm headed to the watchtower. What does that mean? Uh, what does that mean? I think Watchtower, like my only reference for Watchtower is like Jimi Hendrix, which isn't helpful. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and so, so you got to go look back in the Bible here. What is the Watchtower? Just look back in history. Um, and the Watchtower, it's that place where you, you, you go up and you watch out for the enemies. You, you go and you get a line of vision there. It's a better place for that. Um, and, and maybe I'll just define it this way. Maybe a principal way of defining Watchtower. The Watchtower is a place of expectant waiting. It's a place where we go to expectantly wait on God. Well, I guess we just wait in general. And so I don't know. There's been a discussion with the pastors, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a robust discussion of who is he talking to here? Who's going to answer him? Is, is, is Habakkuk at this point saying, I'm done with you, God. I'm just going to wait. I'm going to go up to Watchtower, and I'm going to wait for the Babylonians to come, and I'm going to see what my answer will be. I'm going to see what he will say to me, what these Babylonians are going to say to me. Because if I'm up on the watchtower, maybe you're in this spot, because I'm just so done with you, God, that at least if I get up on the watchtower, I can tell my people, hey, guys, heads up, brace yourself, destruction's coming, and I can at least give my people the heads up. I can at least give my family a heads up that finances are going down fast. I can at least give my spouse a heads up that maybe we're going the wrong direction. Here, I, I, can, I, can, I can at least give... My family, a heads up that I'm not going to turn from my addiction. Man, there, maybe this is it. Maybe you're in that spot. Maybe you're in that spot where you're saying God's not answering. God not, God's not turning. I am so done with God. I just want to get up here, and I'm going to let him take us over. At least I can give a heads up. Maybe, and I don't know if that's exactly what's happening. Maybe he's going up and saying, like Isaiah in Isaiah 30 says, I'm going up to the watchtower, and I'm going to sit here because I am in the presence of God, I am closer to God. And the watchtower is the place of vision. The watchtower is the place of seeing. In the book of Habakkuk, you should read through it and note how many times vision and seeing are mentioned. There's a whole lot of that idea here. I'm going to get a good view of God because I'm not getting it down here. I need to be in his word. I need to be closer to what's happening. I need to hear from you clearly, God. I have to separate myself from my situation. What are you saying? Now, maybe you think that you've done that. Maybe you think in your prayer, in your tear-filled prayer even, that you have gone to God in this watchtower kind of a moment. I don't know how long it takes for God to answer. And he gets up there and he says, I'm going to wait for my answer here. And then the next verse, it could be a day, it could be a moment, it could be a morning, it could be a nice little devotional time. And then the Lord answered Habakkuk. It could be years or decades I think it's pretty fast because the Babylonians end up coming. But what we do need to know between Habakkuk setting down and giving us an example, we can go to God and say, now I must hear you, God. And I will do and respond in what you say. I think that's the other part. Not I need you to hear the things I want you to say or I'll pray again. 
I will do whatever your answer is. What we learn in the response of God is that God does answer. And the Lord answered me. Not knowing what time, what his timing was, he answered me. And what is his answer? He says, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so, it may, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. I love that. That, that Habakkuk leads off saying, you ordained these wicked people as a judgment on us. You established them for reproof. And, and the Lord acknowledges this and says, maybe I ordained, maybe I established, but I've also appointed a time. And that time's not right now. But there is something for you to do. And just as we're question, we have to ask the question, who's the wicked, who's the righteous? He kind of unfolds this for us. And he says, there's a way of righteousness. There is a way of wickedness. There is a way of cursed man. There's a way of the blessed man. This is always this Old Testament idea of, 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 of virtue, of, of what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to put ourselves there and ask, am I the Babylonian? Am I the righteous? Am I the arrogant man? Am I, am I, am I the humble man? Am I, what am I doing here? And so God invites him to it. He says, the, the, the vision hasn't come yet, but it will come. My word will come. And what, you, what are you going to do? Verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Obviously, that's going to be the wicked. But the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. And as I'm reading this, I have to ask the question, what, what is this faith? What is this faith? Is it, is it conversion faith? Is it faith in anything? Is it faith in any God? Is it just faith itself? Is it, uh, who is this faith in, if it is pointed at someone? Is it an acknowledgement that God exists, or is it a deep conviction of our sin? Is it repentance and turning? Is it a dependence on God? I think the summary, I'm digging up a lot of questions here. It is faith in God. I think the author of Hebrews will help us with this, that it is ultimately faith in Christ that we need in the season of wait but we've got a couple more verses, then we can really interact with it. And so he sets this out here. He says the, 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 uh, the wicked, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So if we have faith, how do we live by it? I think that's the, the big question. What is the life we have because of faith. Now, this is also a kind of a concept just in regular life for us. We have wording for it, just life, and then we call it eternal life. Um, in the Old and New Testaments, they have these different, uh, well, in the New Testament especially, they have these different words for life here and life, uh, life eternal. I think sometimes we, we go too quickly to say, I'm going to live by faith. So I'm just going to be, hang on to, to the end of the rope as, as, the, as the speedboat is ripping me through the lake, and by faith, I'm going to hang on to this boat, and it's going to be brutal, and I'm by faith, I'm going to, and I'm not sure that's exactly what God intends for our life. I think he says that by faith, you will hang on in times that are difficult, but there's something bigger, because the Christian message, the message revealed in Scripture is not one of just stick it out, and I'm pumping some hope into you for this week, there's something deeper and truer and lasting that is coming. And I want to get there. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, uses this, this phraseology. He, he, he takes 
this text here, the righteous shall live by faith, and develops it. Now, I, I would encourage you, I'm going to summarize this for the sake of time, but I would encourage you to read Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, and ask, what is faith? And do I have that kind of faith? And how do I have that kind of faith? You know, um, so here's just kind of an, an overview. This is kind of a Bible. I want to pause here and just kind of give you the work here, because you can do this as well. You see in your Bibles, uh, if you go online, it'll tell you that there are other verses that use this, this, this phrase or this term. You can even type in, you know, in a word search, you know, in Bible Gateway, for example, and the righteous and faith, the righteous live by faith or whatever it is. It'll give you those results. There are three um, in the New Testament and then Hebrews is one of them. One of the principles for reading the Bible is use the easier verses and texts to help to interpret the harder, more difficult ones. I feel like I'm, I'm wrestling with what's going on here with Habakkuk, and so the author of Hebrews says, hey, I got this, I'm going to interpret it. And it's interesting because then we also have to note what words change because he's interpreting it in a way that is good for us as Christians. Now we're in the New Testament, in the Christian, the Christ-centered, really uh, Christ-fulfilling these things portion, but I've set this text up enough. I wanted to let you know kind of how to do that. You can do that on your own. Um, that's what I've done, and I'll give you the results here. Uh, Hebrews 10, 35 through 38. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, Habakkuk's not doing that, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance. That's a big key here for Habakkuk. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. There it is. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I think it's interesting that he says the coming one instead of the vision. Hebrews 11 then, we jump ahead. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. There's our clear definition of faith. For by it, People of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, we live. And then we jump ahead to verse, 30, or verse 39 of chapter 11. And all these people, he goes through a whole list of people that by faith live this way, by faith live this way, by faith live this way. And all these people, though commended through their faith, they didn't receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. All of these Old Testament people that were waiting just like Habakkuk didn't receive what was promised, that the Babylonians would be gone. Something bigger and better was coming. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I'm gonna pause here, because tw uh, chapter 12 is where we're going to get to Christ. Something bigger and better is waiting for Habakkuk. Something bigger and better is waiting. But what is our point here if we stay in Habakkuk, if we read how the author of Hebrews is instructing us? He says, God has his timing. It's not our own timing. Our task is to wait with expectation. It will happen. Not yet. But it doesn't mean don't do anything. It means wait urgently with expectation. And that's what the righteous will do. By faith, we can live faithfully. 
There was one season in life that I was just, I had no idea what I was doing. In life, uh, as a pastor, as a husband, as a, as, a, as a father, I just felt like it was a train wreck. I go and I talk to a pastor, and he just opens up a verse of the Bible. It was so wonderful. And he says, read this and tell me, what do you, what do you, what do you think? What is your call in all of these? And it was amazing. Faithful. Just be faithful. Just be faithful. No matter what's happening, just be faithful. Christ is here. Christ is the point. And we get so lost in this so many times. I, uh, I, we, we, get, we get lost in the woes of, of work, of, of, of family, of, of, our, of our unmet desires. Be faithful. I don't know what tomorrow is. Sounds like that's God's job. What is today? Sit on that watchtower and be faithful. Look for him and speak to him. Speak about him to everyone around you. Give the heads up, but that heads up is we will not be destroyed. We have a Savior who comes to deliver. You can be on that watchtower and give the heads up. That is what we are told to do. And that's what the righteous does. He shall live by faith. What does the wicked do? Let's read the rest of these verses here. Verses uh, 5. Uh, Verse 5, I guess. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects collects as his own all people. Note the language in in, in what we've read here today. In verse 13 of chapter 1, the wicked swallows up. In uh, in, in this verse right here, chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 5, he is never at rest. Greed is as wide as Sheol. And echoing Proverbs 30, he says, like death, he never has enough. The way of the arrogant man, the way of the wicked is insatiable. He is never satisfied. He is always longing. I've said it many times before. Uh, St. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This is the wicked man. And so rather than just, uh, you know, saying, oh, these Babylonians are awful, which they were awful. I think if we took a poll right now and said, raise your hand, are you wicked or righteous? I'm not going to do that. Don't raise your hand. Um, uh, I'm sure a lot of us would say, yeah, I think I'm righteous. I think the things I do are good. I, we wouldn't do things unless we thought that they were some good to them. Um, it's just kind of the nature of decision making. We think we're doing the good thing. Uh, and I think if I had to ask you in a conversation, we'd probably say that. But, but here's where we need to really pause. Here's the convicting uh, exercise, I guess. Is that the Babylonians here, are to- we're told what they do, but we're also told a lot about their heart. It's insatiable. It's craving more. It's always, it's a constant, this deep hole, this deep Sheol-sized hole, and it's throwing things in. Like death, it can never consume enough there's this heart of always wanting. It's consumerism to a very spiritual level. What are we going to do? What is going to satisfy? This won't, this won't, this won't. We get there. That is a sign. If that resonates with you, it resonates with me. You've got to pause because that is a sign of wickedness. That is a sign that we have not been satisfied in Christ. So I lay it there and I pray like crazy that the Spirit convict you if that's you. And you don't just sit there in your guilt. We do something. We, we turn to Christ with that. Uh, but we also know that that is a red flag going forward. You don't need me to say, hey, watch out. 
are consuming spiritually a different Lord, a different ruler, a different Savior, when you start to go for the answers, that should be a red flag. It should be in our common language to say, hold up, we're moving toward idolatry. Let's ease off of this. Not ease off of it. Let's run from this. And so that's, that's something that's there. But we also get uh, that his heart is, is insatiable, but he's doing horrible things as well. When we start to amass things, when we start to really lean into our finances or our position, or we start to really look for not just a job change, but a promotion. And when we start to look for extra security here or there, when we start to build a network hoping that, that, that it may provide more safety, when we start to reach out to other people because the, the, the relationships we have in our life are just not as satisfying, when we start to do things where we're trying to cover here or there, that's a great sign that you're not leaning into Christ and seeing his redemptive power in the relationships that you have right now, in the work that you have right now, in the finances you have right now. He has given us what we need and we need to fight that, that, that propensity to consume. And we fight it when we are filled with Christ. I want to go there now. Uh, wait expectantly. There's this crossroads that, that this idea of knowing and doing and being, they all just kind of meet together. They converge together in this idea of waiting. Waiting is a place where we are shaped, where, 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 where we are turned into different people, where, we are, where we are, our thoughts change. I was thinking about this uh, this week. I, it just, it turned for me in this, this idea of waiting. Um, when I think about a lake and people uh, wakeboarding on a lake, that sounds nice. That sounds pleasant. That sounds like summer. However, in two weeks, I hope to be, our plans as a family are to be wakeboarding on a lake. Now, because I just set a timer there, now I have a wait. It's no longer just a thought, but it's a waiting. And now all of a sudden, my thoughts and my emotions and my, my trajectories are changing. I'm going to drop in Christ because that's who we're waiting for. I'm going to drop in Christ because that will change the way we wait. Hebrews 12 is going to help us with this. I feel like right now we have, have, have really raised up this idea of, of, of righteous and wickedness and, and, and diagnose it, here is our solution. Here is Christ. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this is in reference to all the faithful of the Old Testament who didn't receive what they got because something better was to come. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God, uh, right hand of the throne of God. I'm going to pull out a couple ideas here. Um, lay aside. Uh, let us lay aside every weight and sin. It also commands us here, let us run with endurance. If you're just in the Bible study methods class earlier, there is a purposeful ordering of the commands that God gives us here. Lay aside the weight and the sin and run with endurance the, the race that is there. We have to put down all of those weights if we're actually going to run and do it with endurance. So the question is, not me telling you you are wicked, what is that weight that's there. Weights and sin are different things. What weights have you picked up that are hindering your race? What sins do you have 
that you are tempted on, that come upon you, that cling to you, that you need to turn from. Weights and sin, lay those down. But also run with endurance because this season might not be wonderful. It might not be encouraging and uplifting. The vision has not come to its appointed time, so wait urgently with expectation. And here's the last thing and the most important thing of all. Verse 2, it's halfway down there on the screen. It says, looking to Jesus. This is like an, an adverb. It doesn't say, lay aside every weight and sin. One. Two, run with endurance. And then three, and then look to Jesus. It says, lay aside your weight and run with endurance as you are looking at Christ. Looking at Christ is the motive of why we lay down and lay these things aside. Looking at Christ is the motive of why we run the race. If you lay aside things and you run the race, you have landed yourself in a very Christianese-sounding self-help. We must do it looking at Christ, who is the founder and perfecter, the completer of all these promises of our faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And when we have faith in Christ, when we lay down our sin by faith in Christ, when we run the race in faith of Christ, then we will have true everlasting life and meaningful life today. So, in the silent Saturdays, the day between the struggle and the solution, urgently wait on the Lord. Urgently wait for Christ with expectation. I'll read James 5 to us, uh, to us and this will be the, be the close. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives, an early, uh, receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What a beautiful thing for us to hear. Urgently wait with expectation. He will not delay, uh, neither, uh, neither now uh, nor, uh, nor then. When his appointed time comes, he will not delay. Urgently wait with expectation. Let's pray.